Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am joined by Dr. Nick Morgan and Becky Paskin. Nick has 30 years experience in the Scotch whisky industry as the former head of whisky outreach for Diageo and the founder of the Diageo Archive in Scotland. He is also the author of a new book, A Long Stride, the story of the world's number one Scotch whisky, which details the 200-year history of the Johnny Walker brand. Becky is a freelance journalist, formerly editor of The Spirits Business and ScotchWhiskey.com, and she's the co-founder of Our Whisky, an organisation that promotes diversity in the whisky industry. On this episode, we discuss research techniques and archives, the history of Johnny Walker right through to present day, where we discuss how the brand is adapting. We talk about the goals of our whisky and ways in which brands, venues and people can champion diversity in the whisky industry and take a look at what the future might hold for the whisky category. Okay, I'm here with Nick Morgan and Becky Paskin. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Tristan. So let's start from the beginning. Nick, could you tell us a little bit about your background in whiskey and how you got into it, please? Sure. No, delighted. I mean, you know, it's all an accident, as as most things in one's career are. By by training, I think you probably know, Tristan, I'm a historian. And um, I was approached to go down to London and talk to some people about a job at United Distillers. And United Distillers was the spirits business that had been formed after the merger of Guinness and the old distillers company that happened in 1987. And some people there decided they wanted to set up uh, an archive, a historical archive. And I was in that archivist role for about three, three years, which was very entertaining. It was great fun doing that. And then a few years later, when Diageo was formed uh, in 1997, I, much to my surprise, became global marketing director for Single Malt. We had Joanne McKercher on, and you, you obviously popped up in conversation about, around the setting up of the archives. And it was, I mean, I've, I've been to the Diageo archives a couple of times. Um, fascinating place. And I, but it, I, I'd met Joanne a few times, but never really gotten to grips with what her sort of day-to-day activities um were comprised of and and the role of an archivist in general it's fascinating stuff and it must have been so exciting at the time for you as a historian and probably getting your teeth into a newer or newish subject of whiskey especially to be sort of setting this whole thing up yeah I mean it was really it was a really interesting experience because of course as a historian that's like becoming an archivist is like poacher turned gamekeeper um, <laughs> oh that's and, that's a good analogy i like that well it's very true but i mean it's very you know, i was very lucky that i had a had had a team of professionals um who i was able to employ who helped me although i have to say not as big as the team that there is there now which is an astonishing i think there's six full-time archivists or something you know which is a remarkable investment on behalf of diageo in its in its history but of course now the, where joe works with christine mccafferty who's the sort of senior archivist in charge is the biggest collection of historical material relating to alcohol beverage in the world it's an astonishing place amazing stuff and growing all the time and this is the thing that i always it always amazes me it's like by the sounds of things the team there are just constantly on the lookout and acquiring new things or being offered things from all over the world, stuff they didn't even know existed. Yeah, I mean, although even the best archive is only a fragment of the uh, of the past, you know, it's impossible. It's you know, one of the things that archivists are very well trained in doing is throwing stuff away, 
because that's that's what you have to do. The idea that you keep everything is, um, you know, is 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 totally against the archivist's principle, and that's really where the gamekeeper poacher thing comes in. Because as a historian, you go keep everything, you know, keep everything, but that's just just not possible. Whether it's a business archive or national archives in Edinburgh or in in London, you know, you have to select and just just try and keep a representative sample, you know, of what you can to tell the story of the past. Is there anything that you've ever thrown away that you've regretted, Nick? Uh, personally, <laughs> <laughs> I, I regret getting rid of a lot of vinyl about 10 years ago. Actually. That's, that's a different story altogether. Um, no, because actually I, I, I couldn't do the throwing away bit when I was when I was working in the archive. Um, I, I left that to the people that knew how to do it. I just didn't look, you know, really. It was not what I wanted to see. I mean, the regret is, and and I realised this um, working on the Johnny Walker project that I sort of finished last year, um, the regret is that stuff has been thrown away in the past. And as, as, you, as you work through an archive, it's only then that you actually realise what's missing. And, and actually, an even worse example of that, Becky, was in, in Brighton in the archives that are by the football ground, the new football ground. Really nice building. And in there they have um, a collection of papers from Sir James Stevenson, who was a director of Walker's in the early 20th century. Very, very important man, not just for Johnny Walker, but for the whiskey industry in, in general and British politics, in which he became heavily involved. And the stuff that they have there is is a fragment of his personal papers. But the first thing I read, the first file I opened, and the first thing I read was, was a speech, a copy of a speech that he'd given, talked about the fact that he'd kept diaries for the whole of his business life. And none of these diaries have survived. And you just read that and you, your head falls on the bench. You know, it's like, oh, Lord. You that's know. in your. That's in the book, isn't it? In the the, the opening. <clears throat> I think I mentioned that. Yeah. Prologue, yeah. Yeah. You just um, get that kind of "what if I had access to all of that information" yeah. thing, and and then knowing that it did at one time exist, but now it's unobtainable. And you know, it's interesting because when people keep diaries, they sort of keep them for a reason, and, and very often what happens is that their children or grandchildren, whatever it might is look at the stuff and maybe read it and go, oh, I don't think people will really ought to read that bit. Or they just go, no one's interested in this, we'll just chuck it out. And yet I can tell you there would have been a book of its own if Stevenson's diaries had, had have survived, you know. Have you been to the archives up in Scotland for Becky? I have, yes. I think a couple of times now. Um, not really ever to do any research of my own. In fact, never to do research of my own. It's just to have a nose around and uncover things and be shown this bottle or that bottle and um have a wander around the the moving shelves of documents and look at old photos and just incredible i mean the the one that gets called out the most is probably the um the old highland bottle of whiskey that has a snake mm. in it that's i mean that obviously stands out in everybody's minds when they go to the, the archive is like this incredible um, precursor to Johnny Walker, which is just uh, probably the oldest. Is it? Is it Nick the oldest uh, artifact in the archives, or the oldest bottle in the archives? No, I don't think it is because I think they've got some. Um, I think they've certainly got some gin stuff. Yeah, there's a flagon of Gordon's. I think that's yeah, the, the oldest. Predates that, and they probably I think it's the oldest Johnny Walker bottle, though. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's got a snake in it, and I, d- I never quite got a conclusive answer for why there is a snake in this bottle. Someone suggested that the first runoff are still. Maybe you should bottle it with a snake for good luck. Do you know, Nick? I don't know. So if you go to, uh, in the good old days when you could travel and go and museums were open and you could visit museums, there are lots of lovely little local museums in the north of Scotland, around Otterpool, places like that. And a couple are actually in old old schoolhouses. And that was actually the first time in one of those, the first times I saw snakes in a whiskey bottle, okay? Mm. And it was very common uh, in Scotland and probably in England as well for teachers to collect snakes as samples for their, for their pupils and you put them in whiskey to, to preserve them. So it's just like a, a, a medical, um, you know, piece of a body that might be put in formaldehyde or something. And instead of using formaldehyde, they just put them in whiskey. So I've seen shelves full of these um, old whiskey bottles with grass snakes and adders and all that sort of stuff in. Talisker, they had a couple um, of old Talisker bottles where they had fished snakes, water snakes, out of the worm tubs at the mm. back of the distillery, and they just got stuck in a bottle and kept in the manager's office for some reason, you know. That's hilarious. So it's less about sort of, you know, approving the whiskey or christening it than it is just preserving snakes for um, for, for, for educational reasons. Preserving snakes, I think, yeah. <laughs> Well, there's a few distilleries that have got fish living in, like, the water. Like, they've got a, you know, a sort of lake out the front or whatever they're pulling water from. That's not uncommon. And tomatoes. I can't remember which distillery it was up north that had a famous tomato farm at the back of it that used the warm water from uh, the the old production water that went into to make off-season tomatoes. I think it's still there, actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, like I like that. And like the swimming pool at Beaumont, of course, which is heated by... Um, by heat exchange with the distillery as well, which is very cool, actually, very cool. So, um, Nick, you've written a book, um, which I will confess I've only read half of. Um, That's not bad. It's not bad going, is it? Only because it's been a bit of a kind of crazy year so far for reading. I've had so many little things on the go that I wanted to get through. And I started yours... um, back when it first came out November time was it your book Um, Uh, yeah end of October yeah yeah so uh, anyway um I'm only halfway through I'm gonna finish it do you want to tell us a little bit about it it's called the long stride long stride yeah well it was uh, you know the, the 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 book was written to coincide with the um celebration of bicentenary of John Walker and Sons Johnny Walker um a little strangely, actually, um, Johnny Walker found itself celebrating its centenary in an influenza pandemic um, in 1920, and it found itself celebrating its bicentenary in a COVID pandemic in 2020. So I'm sort of glad I'm not going to be around for th- uh, the next one, you know, because who knows, <laughs> who knows what they might get then. But but the idea was that the book would be part of a much bigger celebration, and obviously, sadly, a lot of that didn't didn't happen for for a whole range of reasons connected with with the pandemic. And it's a, you know, it's a project that I'd wanted to do for many years and had discussed with people somewhat stubbornly as 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 an idea. Um, and I was lucky enough to get some sponsors um, for it. I was very lucky as well that they agreed that this would be a proper history. So. With no disrespect to many other company histories, they tend just to focus on 
founders and directors and they all end up with a picture of the new boardroom and all of that sort of stuff and the new factory this was not going to be that sort of book it was going to be a book that told the story of a remarkable business remarkable people in a remarkable business um, but also tell it very much in the context of the development of scotch whiskey as a whole and uh, to an extent in the development of the culture of, of drinking and leisure and stuff like that as a whole as well. So it's it's it. I would like to think it's um, much more of an expansive book than people might think when, when, when they just see that it's a history of Johnny Walker. There's a lot more to it than that. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I mean, it's been really well received, which is very gratifying because it's quite nerve wracking having not done anything like that for many years. P putting a book out, you, you sort of hold your breath and, and wait to see what people say. Um, but it is a great story. And I think one of the reasons it's such a great story, um, you know, I mentioned Sir James Stevenson slightly earlier in our conversation. But one of the reasons it's such a great story is that there are so many great people, you know. And we all know that whiskey is about people, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, it's all about people. And there are some great ones that come in and out of the story and some that um, I would have liked to have written a lot more about if I'd have had more space and maybe even a bit more room from the lawyers as well. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, that, and I think that gives it colour and, uh, and a bit of excitement and, and a bit of emotion now and again as well, apart from, you know, all the fantastic stuff about how the brand developed around the world. I think that's, that's so key to writing... Um, about history is to try to get under the skin of the people that were there and to bring them to life because otherwise it can get so easily bogged down with dates and data um, and you miss so much you know you can skip a decade yeah. and fill it in with some sales volumes and you know export markets and a few choice dates and miss all those relationships and those people that were kind of changing the shape of a product or an industry during that time. And of course, it's, it's by, by its very nature, that's the hardest thing to do because to, to capture what the personality and, and the character of someone from 100 years ago isn't easy. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I love, I love data. And in fact, there are five or six graphs in the book. And if you don't have to read the book, just look at the graphs. Because they, they they tell the story actually far more articulately than, uh, than than I than I can write, but but I've always thought you know when I was doing historical work in the past I was thought that one of one of the one of the jobs of historians if you will is to rescue people from the past, mm. you know, rescue forgotten people from the past, and there are many forgotten people, many forgotten men, and of course even more forgotten women you know who just mm. just never get a, a, a place on the stage. And and I think it's a historian's job to try and rectify that and bring some of these people out and their stories. And um, as I say, there was no no shortage of those people and personalities in in the Johnny Walker story. So how do you go about getting started on something like this? Because I mean, it is effectively a kind of biography of the whole Johnny Walker dynasty. Now, obviously, you set up the archives. We know that. So there's you know there's a there's a there's a, there's a starting point. You know, you've got. Uh, I guess a, quite a wealth of historical uh, accounts, um, maybe diaries, things like that. But you know, where where else do you get this information from? Is it newspaper archive? You know, where do you go? Well, like, like, like I said, you know, it's only, it's only when you start looking at, at something or a particular archive that you begin to realise how much you haven't got. And you know, in the story of 
Johnny Walker, for example, we have two documents only that relate to the founder of the company. Mm. So chapter one was looking a bit thin when I, when I, when I started. Um, but, but, you know, public records, public records in Scotland in particular are, are, are brilliant in terms, not just of registers of births and deaths, but wills and inventories, which were meticulously kept property transactions. And I've done all, all of that stuff I used to work on years and years ago. And you, and you can, in the absence of, of records, you can actually begin to build up some quite compelling pictures uh, and compelling stories. Um, and the public archives in Scotland are, are, are very good as well. Um, do you, you have you done much sort of history research for your for journalism? I mean, you must do a bit, little bits and pieces here and there, Becky. But you ever done any sort of serious historical research? Um, quite a bit with ScotchWhiskey dot com. So mm. uh, it's still live, so you, you can go and have a look at the website. Although sadly, uh, we uh, had to close uh, ScotchWhiskey dot com back here the end of two thousand nineteen which gosh seems like so long ago yeah so sad mm. i mean what a great website and great contributors and so you were heading that up as the editor weren't you um, yes yes that's right so as, as part of that project we had a section of the website called Wikipedia, and that is basically a database of scotch whiskey distilleries brands companies anything you name it and as part of that we went back into uh, trying to have a page on as many lost distilleries as possible. So part of my job was to head up a team of researchers and writers, and I did a lot of the work myself, all of the fact-checking, to create this um, this database of... At, at that st- I mean, by the time we left, I think it was around 20,000 pages. Um, and we also had a... We had, we had plans for this bottle library, which I think always had a, a holding page. For the full four or five years scotchwhisker.com lived, the, the bottle library was always just a holding page because we never quite managed to get it off the ground. But there were some 40,000, 50,000 bottles within that too. Um, but with Wikipedia. The, the research that went into, I mean, obviously a lot of books have been written about lost distilleries and, and there is um, some, some lovely books detailing um, the records of distillery licences. So going back through a lot of those, not all of them, of course, are completely accurate or even uh, agree with one another. Mm. So trying to find the most um, reliable source, the most reliable information, and then realising that actually dates don't add up because this person was was doing this distillery at this time. So how could they possibly have been distilling under that distillery the other side of the country at the same time? And it's a, it was a minefield of just trying, of trawling through so much information. And, and again, the internet was incredible. All of these um, library archives and, and image archives as well, trying to see the distilleries, the places that actually once were, plotting them on a map as well. We had coordinates for everything and trying to to figure out what's in that place now, like where are they? It's it's such a huge job, and I don't. I feel like I didn't quite manage to finish that project. So talking about regrets, that's probably one that I have is is not really managing to finish off Wikipedia to the level that I wanted to before before the site closed. It's so good though that the website's still there, Becky. I mean, yes, yes. I I I I don't know what the plans are. Quite honestly, it's something I'm asked a lot. I don't know what the plans are for ScotchWhisker.com. Whether that will be um, integrated with the Whiskey Exchange's website, whether they're going to relaunch it as something else, I don't know. But mm. I'm I'm glad it's there for now because even I still use it as a resource. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it it crops up sort of generally 
near the top when you search for something obscure relating to whiskey you know yeah it's it's definitely a useful resource i'd happily pay just to have it maintained you know for the for the server space or whatever um because i use it as well it's just you know there are certain websites like that where it's so nice to have quick access to reliable data um that you don't need to fact check um nick just going back to I mean, look, there's a bunch of bits about Johnny Walker that I'd love to sort of get your your thoughts on. But one of the things that I think always surprised me um, and that may surprise many people listening is how little we know about Johnny Walker himself. Um, And you you mentioned it already. I mean, there's there's I believe only one example of his signature uh, in existence, which is, is in the archive. And really so little is known about his life and so much of the success of the company is down to Alexander Walker and um you know other other figures that you've mentioned already so what what do we know about John Walker well i i mean you know it has to be said in 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 some respects he was the most important person okay mm. he he was set up in business in 1820 in a grocery shop in Kilmarnock his father had died he was a young man, the proceeds of the farm, not the farm building, but the stock, the animal stock and all that sort of stuff was sold. And part of the funds from that were used to set up this business for John in Kilmarnock, which he must have gone into as an apprentice. And then he took it over, a full, fully managed it a few years later. It was a grocery shop. It sold tea, sugar, spices, confectionery uh, and wine and spirits. Um, at the beginning, as far as we can tell, tea was by far and away the most important thing, commodity they sold. But by the time John died, which was in 1857, so he ran the shop for 30-odd years, by the time John died, it clearly specialised in selling blended whisky, both in the shop, customers, and a wholesale whisky business in the surrounding area in Ayrshire um, as well. And, and the fact of the matter is that in the in that time in the 19th century, most people who went into the grocery business, which was an easy thing to get into by and large, you didn't need a lot of capital to set yourself up as a grocer or a wine and spirit merchant. Most people who went into that business failed very quickly, five years sort of max for most of them. So the fact that he kept that business going um, for th- 37 years or so, the fact that he handed it over to his son with this vibrant blended whiskey business, which was a new thing and was just the coming thing. I mean, it was just the moment for Alexander Walker to go into that business in, in the late 50s was a remarkable achievement. But he was a very shy man. <laughs> he was a very shy man. And in fact, he had a reticence about him, which his whole family shared. So, you know, very often when people talk about blended Scotch whiskey and and the history of it, it won't be too many sentences before they start talking about the whiskey barons Mm. and about Tommy Dewar, flamboyant, self-promoting publicity seeker, a sort of Richard Mm. Branson, you know, of his age. Um, In in fact, probably more famous, relatively speaking, than Richard Branson is in his time. I mean, Tommy Dewar was a rock and roll star, you know, as far as the world was concerned. James Buchanan, these sorts of people, spending money, conspicuous consumption, racehorses, works of art, blah, blah, blah. The Walkers didn't do any of that. They didn't do any of that. They they were quite dour people, thrawn. 
is a word that describes a certain Scottish outlook on uh, on the world. And 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 the Jewers, the Jewers used to describe the Walkers as thrawn. I mean, they really didn't get on these families. Thrawn. I don't know what the definition of thrawn is, but it almost doesn't need defining. You can kind of tell what it means. Bloody minded. (laughs) But but the Walkers had to be thrawn because that was where they got the resilience that built the business. I mean, it was a determination to to succeed. And remember, they were sort a couple of generations before these big competitors who turned up at the end of the. 19th century so walkers in a sense were like the old men of whiskey but by that point which was also what the jews used to call them so um so with with the whole sort of celebrity thing that surrounded like buchanan and and doer tommy doer um by the way i remember i think one of the first times we met i remember you giving a presentation about barons of blending and you you started it with a picture of tommy doer sat on a camel in front of the pyramids Mm. (laughs) <laughs> to to kind of indicate how this guy had this sort of you know he travelled for a year or so didn't he just to promote the brand and yeah. it was it was a real global celebrity. What 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 gave um what, what was the advantage the Walkers had then uh, if it wasn't this sort of like showy um, presence in in pop culture? What was it about their brand and the whiskey that you know obviously made it so successful during that period yes good question and and the answer the answer sounds really corny but it's the truth they had the best whiskey (laughs) They, they, they were obsessed by quality they were absolutely obsessed by quality and we're very lucky to have uh letters from alexander walker that's john's son who was the man that really exploded the business in the 19th century now we've only got 10 years of those letters um, they're not online. That was six months of my life reading Alexander Walker's letters, but hugely rewarding in many, many senses. Um, you know, and his personality speaks through really strongly, and that comes through, I hope, in the book as well. But but to say that Alexander was obsessed by quality is an understatement. It was all about selling the best that you could, a very old-fashioned principle of business, mm. you know, a quote um, that I was talking to some people last night and I used, quality will stand on its merit. It was as simple as that. Make the best and it will sell. And that was the business principle. And behind that went a whole lot of quite revolutionary things. I mean, in 1881, Walker's sold 50,000 12-bottle cases of whiskey or they exported 50,000 12-bottle cases of whiskey. That's a lot of whiskey, right? Mm. Ten years later, they were selling double that. And they were trying to maintain quality uh, when, when you're scaling up and when you're having to bring in whiskey from distilleries that you've never dealt with before that you can only do because people are starting to build railway lines and things. It's all, mm. everything's changing, everything's growing. You know, it's, it's going, 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 going. And they're trying to keep up and quality, quality, quality is what they wanted to sell. Mm. And so the other thing they did, and Alexander's son, also Alexander, one of his sons in the business, Sir Alexander Walker, uh, spent most of his time just buying whiskey. They bought up whiskey stocks because they knew if you wanted to sustain the quality of blends. I mean, today, jo- today Johnny Walker talks about having ten million casks of maturing whiskey in Scotland, right? No one's got no one's got any more casks of whiskey than Johnny Walker. They were saying the same thing at the end of the nineteenth century. You know, they had the most whiskey. That was how you guaranteed quality. Mm. 
in the end, they, they went into advertising as well. And when they did that, they did it better than anyone else as well. But um, but they shied away from publicity. It was about what was in the bottle. Yeah. What were they selling back then exactly? Because this is before the introduction of all the different coloured labels and everything. So was there a core product or was there a range of products? Well, core, core brand was the one that um, you, you or Becky mentioned earlier was the old Highland whiskey, which is the bottle that's got the snake in it. In, in the archives. So that was a brand that was registered, trademarked by Alexander in the early 1860s. And that was pr the, the core brand really all the way through until the end of the 19th century when they sort of stuttered their way a little into having suddenly this range of three brands, which were not just segmented but as eventually by colour, that was how consumers recognised them. I mean, they had very complicated names, but consumers went for the easy white, red and, and black, you know. Uh, but they were segmented by age as well. Hmm. And, and the fact the fact that Walker could do that was all down to the whiskey stocks that they had, because no one else did it at the time. And no no one else in the world of Scotch whiskey has had a 12-year-old a, a deluxe, like Johnny Walker Black Label, for that for that length of time. So moving from old highland whiskey into that range of three segmented by age the beginning of the 20th century was an absolute game changer you know and people people talk about first mover advantage you know in in different categories and stuff it's business historians love talking about it well believe me that range was real first mover advantage it's a bit like when United Distillers launched Classic Malts of Scotland mm. six six malt whiskies and all together in a, in a plinth you know Game changer for single malts, you know, game changer for single malts. And that, that was the impact of, of moving from one brand to three for Johnny Walker. Hmm. And then because Gold Label, that was the creation of Sir Alexander Walker, right? Uh, well, Gold I, Label was based on his recipes because we yeah. actually have a little notebook of, um, of Alexander, Alexander Walker's per personal jottings which were what were given to um, the guys in the blending team then to go and actually make the blends. And Gold Label came from one of those one of the pages in one of those notebooks. Yeah, because I, 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 I always seem to remember that the one, one of his notes was that it should taste of honey or honeycomb and chocolate. And I, I remember the first time I tasted Gold Label, and I'm talking about old Gold Label here, um, not Gold Reserve as it now is, because I think that's changed slightly to my mind anyway and I remember thinking wow this just tastes of honeycomb and chocolate how unbelievable is that that this the idea of the concept of this whiskey was penned you know 100 years ago or whatever and um and it's still sort of transitioned through and still tastes that same way although I think I suspect Klein Leash Distillery had something to do with the the maintenance of that particular flavor profile because it's a yeah. big, it was a big component of gold label and it does have honey honeycomb kind of notes to it yeah, I mean, it's interesting, um, both uh, the first Alexander Walker and his sons were really good on flavour. To be honest, I'd be surprised if he wrote honey and chocolate, but he would have thought it, for sure. <laughs> and and you can see when you when you look at the jottings in the notebook, you can always tell what these things are going to taste like. Mm. In fact, Jim Beveridge and I were talking about this last night, We the Johnny Walker Blender, Master Blender, we were doing a thing for some people and we were talking about those notebooks and how important they've been sort of not just from a historical point of view but for the blending team to look at and understand how walker put their blends together which was all about pre-vattings and building blocks of flavor 
And that's still very much the approach that the company uses now when it's dreaming up new blends, whether they're really expensive new blends or more accessible new blends. You know, it's about building blocks of flavor and combining those to deliver the flavors that you've got in your mind, which is what the blender's always thinking about. You know, I know what this is going to taste like. How can I arrive at that end product? So when they're, when they're putting these notes down, is it more a case of categorizing the profile of a distillery to kind of meet this sort of desired final not, outcome? Not, not, or- not even distillery, Tristan, because, I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, um, and we were talking about this last night as well. Pe- people today lo- love to talk about the irrelevance of whiskey regions. Yes. You know? And I think people have got some mixed up ideas of what whiskey regions meant in the 19th century because they were everything in the 19th century. Whiskey regions were the way that the business worked because there was a whole commodity market for the sale of whiskies from different distilleries. And that commodity market, if you go to any of the trade journals on a Thursday afternoon, look what's happened in the week. Well, Lowlands are up, mm. Campbelltown's down. Campbelltown was always down. It was just going down and down and down. Islas are up, Highlands are up, Grains not doing much, you know. And, and, and so that commodity market price, that was how you bought and sold but it was also how blenders would, would start assembling blends. Mm. So they would have pre-vattings of Highlands, Islas, of Campbelltowns, of Lowlands. They used other words as well, which meant sort of mixing regions up. So they have plain malt. So that was malt that really didn't have a lot of flavour, if you want, and stuff like that. But but regions were actually paramount to the way that Alexander Walker thought. Nor, he used to call North Country, that was Highland, North Country, Islands, you know, Lowlands, stuff like that. So you would group together distilleries, hmm. and that was really important because you never knew what particular distillery you were going to have. So you had to have flexibility hmm. within the way you combine these building blocks. You group together distilleries, pre-vattings, and then, as I say, you knew what you knew the taste that you wanted. So then it was about balancing these pre-vattings, and of course, also at that time as well, thinking in a quite sophisticated way about the wood that you've used. And, of course, also the age as well. So you've still got all these other variables coming into play. Yeah, so it's less in a sense of, like, being able to summarise what the blend tastes like in terms of flavour notes and more in an understanding that I know I need 10% Isla, I know that I need 40% Highland, I know I need X percent of this other thing because that those ingredients put together create my blend. Absolutely, absolutely. It's really cool, isn't it? <laughs> I I I just find it fascinating to understand because what do you you it's it's important to remember this is like a you know a, a relatively nascent industry at that time as well right I mean it's because blending was wasn't was illegal for a long time right well no no you have to be careful on that point it 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 was legal and one of the things I talk about in the book is that people were blending grain and malt whiskies way back before continuous everyone thinks it all starts with the continuous still you know mm. in the nearest coffee people were making grain whiskey in pot stills and it was being blended with malt whiskey very deliberately and in fact those very early blends have got almost the same proportions of malt to grain as we use today so that sort of hasn't really changed. yeah 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 none of that's changed what what the law prevented was doing it in bonded warehouses when you didn't have to pay duty. So trying to do it on a big scale was so expensive, it was prohibitive. When the laws changed in the 1850s um, across, across a whole n- number of different things and you can blend whiskey and bond, suddenly 
you know, the industry takes off because you don't need that huge amount of capital that you would have needed um, that you, you, you would have needed in the past. But even then, as, as Alexander Walker's letter books show from the 1880s, they're struggling to keep up with demand and, and finding the ability to produce consistent blends with, with, the, with the different ingredients they need as they're scaling up and scaling up and scaling up. So, you know, when was blending perfected? Well, possibly the 1920s or 1930s. I mean, you know, it took a, the idea that suddenly someone was said, I've got blended whiskey and it's great. You know, it's never going to change. It's, it's evolving all the time in a way that it's still evolving today for a whole range of different reasons. You're talking about evolving. I'd really love to, to see how grain whiskey that's been distilled in a pot still in Scotland fares today. And I, I can imagine it probably had a, a, a richer, more fuller flavour than the grain whiskey mm. that we're, we're used to now, which is obviously done in column still. So a lot of that flavour is, is stripped out during that process. So grain whiskey, I mean, at the moment, we're really only seeing the likes of rye being released as a single grain, as a, as a grain whiskey that's been done in a pot still. But I'd really love to see how the likes of corn comes out yeah there are corn i mean there's corn whiskies in the Nick's u.s got a look on his face though which makes me think diadre's done this and he's tasted it already <laughs> no 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 although you have to you have to just imagine diadre's done everything anyway yes, of course but, of uh, course they have <laughs> but no what i was going to say is i mean because probably what you're talking about with those pot still grain whiskies is something like irish pot still single whiskies you know um but what the reason i was grinning was something that <laughs> that I found uh, from the, I think it's from the 1860s or 1870s, because the lines, the lines in the 19th century between Irish whiskey and Scotch whiskey were, were not as tightly defined as they are today. In fact, they were distinctly blurred in, in many, many respects. Um, and um, John Haig claimed there was a sort of dispute going on between Scottish distillers and Irish distillers and John Haig at Cameron Bridge put out these adverts all over all over the country, um, claiming that he made better Irish whiskey in Cameron Bridge than the Irish could make in Dublin. You know, and he was making it in pot stills. He calls it pot still whiskey, pot still Irish whiskey. So you can um, you can taste if you want to call it grain whiskey. I mean, all over America, made in pot stills now. Of course, there's mm. corn whiskies and wheat whiskies and. Well, any type of grain you can imagine, even new hybrid grains being produced in pot stills. So I guess that they would be a, an approximation. The only problem, of course, is that most of them are being put into virgin oak. So that's going to distort, you know, the taste as opposed to something put in a refill cask. But um, And most I think, of them in, in environments as well, which are very uh, unlike Scottish maturation yeah. environments. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it depends. There's probably some bits of America that aren't well, they're not as wet. No one's as wet as Scotland. <laughs> but don't imagine Tristan that a lot of Scotch whiskey wasn't put into virgin oak in the 19th century. Well, yeah, it was. It I knew was. I'd, you know, I knew I'd trip up on that one. Um, <laughs> and that, that, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, there wasn't so many bourbon casks knocking around. I suppose to be putting whiskey into. So, you, and you've got to get the oak from somewhere, right? And if someone yeah. hasn't used it before, well, I mean, it would have been a lot more sherry casks, right? Well, proportionately, there was, some, there was some sherry casks, but the sherry sherry trade in the UK collapsed in in the 1870s so come the 1890s which was just the point when scotch whiskey distillers wanted loads of sherry casks you couldn't get them you just couldn't get them yeah 
Yeah, so I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It's you, con- you obviously didn't get to chapter five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I probably did, but it might have been before Christmas, and uh, lot, lots, lot, lot, lots of other stuffs gone through my head in, in the meantime. I, I tell you what, I wish my my uh, recollection for things that I read is getting worse and worse. I'm not even mm-hmm. sure why I bother anymore. I only really get to know that thing for about the sort of five minutes that come after having read it, and then it's gone. It vanishes. Um, I blame homeschooling. Uh, <laughs> um, so talking about Walker sort of present day and like where we've come to now how do you, you sort of I'm interested to get both of your opinions on this really where do you sort of see it sitting in the scheme of things and how do you see that the sort of business has, has changed and how is it still the same well I guess it, it's, it's interesting because the film that that came out around the same time as you you launched your book, Nick, I think really answered this question well. Um, we In the UK, I think we can, and I, Nick, in many tastings I've had with you, this is something that you've mentioned quite a lot. In the UK, we seem to have a very sheltered view of what scotch and what whiskey means to us. Uh, whiskey, scotch is, is a global export and Johnny Walker is a global name. So while in the UK, we may have a a perception of blended whiskey being something that's maybe inferior to single malts and not rightly so in my opinion but globally blended whiskey particularly a brand like Johnny Walker is very highly revered and in certain markets is very aspirational as a brand compared to other local spirits that people may be used to to consuming so the the perception of Johnny Walker these days, I think, just depends on where you are and and um, and how it's been how it's been portrayed. And you know, Johnny Walker is an icon in some cases. You know, up there with Nike and McDonald's, it's it's a brand and it's something that I think the success of something like Johnny Walker has really helped make Scotch whiskey as an industry um, such a big global success story. Yeah, no, I'd agree, I'd agree with that. I think any any sector or whatever you want to call it category needs a Johnny Walker. You know, you you need something out there that that stands for quality, but stands for the quality of the whole whole category, not just not not just the brand. And I think you're absolutely right, Becky. I think um, and 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 the the man who walked the world. You know, the film that you mentioned. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name. <laughs> um, I think that brings home very much this 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 sentiment that people do lose sight of in the UK. Johnny Walker is a global brand, and I mean, it, it came home to me when I first started working um, in the business and started travelling to the United States quite a lot. And you know, you travel into the United States in the old days, and the customs guys there could be a bit fierce. You know, they they no doubt about it, be a bit fierce. But I learned very quickly that if you told them who you worked for, and and in my instance, I always said Johnny Walker. I didn't say United Distillers or then DLS. I worked for Johnny Walker. The conversation was entirely different. It just flipped on its head. You know, if you tried that black label or is that got is that blue as as good as they say? You know, chit chat at customs. Off you go. It was great. And and I think that just and anywhere in the world, it's the same. You mentioned Johnny Walker. You know. People people t- treat you entirely differently, and that's because the brand is held in such respect, in such awe. You know, in, in the film, they show it being used in sort of quasi-religious ceremonies, and heaven heaven knows what. 
um it, it's just this massive thing and and, and it is built i'm going to go right back to the history because that's where it's important it's built on the promise of quality and it's also built on on on, on the promise of you know sort of value for money from red label all the way through to blue and and beyond if you want a global brand of whatever it is you're selling you have to have that guarantee of quality and and maintain it and i think that's that's why you've got 10 million casks of maturing scotch whiskey and so on and so forth because it all comes back to that at the end of the day yeah i tell you what I've, if anyone's listening to this and wants to get a bit of johnny walker inspiration obviously besides buying nick's book which it might take you a few hours to read if you want to if you want to do something that's only going to last three or four minutes but really get you inspired I would advise looking at the video that Robert Carlyle did for for Johnny Walker. I think that's called The Man Who Walked uh, yeah. the World or something as well. Google it, it's on YouTube and it's three minutes long and it's like all it's a Johnny Walker history compressed into about three minutes, all taken in one single steady cam shot, shot up in the Highlands of Scotland, and you get to see great Scottish actor um tell you this story and it's sort of illustrated with a few just a handful of props and a bagpiper um did, did you have something to do with the creation of that nick you probably did didn't you uh well i sort of helped because a lot of the words in there was stuff that i'd worked on um previously but it was it was that the handiwork of my former colleague david gates and and the remarkable thing about it is that it was only intended as an internal sort of morale building video that's what David wanted to do. He wanted to sort of get the business internally behind Johnny Walker and have some belief in the brand. You know, all brands internally go through sort of times when people are thinking maybe it was a bit tough. You know, it's not not so not so easy doing this. So David wanted to inspire people. But it's just a brilliant. You're absolutely right. It's a brilliant film. Yeah, it used to almost bring me to tears watching it. It was so powerful. So, um, Nick, you've written a book. I mean, that must have been difficult there must have been hoops to jump through in order to get everything past legal and brand teams on board with you know everything you're writing up with the challenges there or was it well it was it was interesting I mean the um I, I I was allowed to just do it you know so so no no one interfered with me no one asked me what I was doing no one asked me why I was going there or going here I mean I was I was just allowed to get on with it um and then of course when when the writing started which was actually complete in lockdown and then we went through the editing process in in lockdown the story is you know as as it was and i was very happy with it as as we came through that process yeah that's good so you, how long did it take from start to fit i mean it's one of those ones which i suppose you've been writing it for for decades really but you know what, what was the sort of time scale on writing it and editing it yeah so what i say tristan is quite right so well i've been thinking about it for 30 years and i researched it for about three years and wrote it in about six months yeah okay cool that's a pretty decent sized book to write in six months even mm. with all the research done i've got to say it's it's a, it's a bit of a tome really um yeah, well done lockdown is a great time to write book <laughs> funnily enough it's one of the only times in the last 10 years that i haven't been writing a book um becky what have you been doing uh for the last year because obviously scotchwhiskey.com shuttered what are we talking a year or two ago now 18 months ago so what's been happening since then yeah so scotchwhisker.com closed in october 2019 um 
and obviously which was very sad so obviously I spent a bit of time after that just sort of tying off some loose ends I'm never one to just I can't sit still I can't and I always have so many ridiculous ideas for things to do and I have this I, I always just want to help other people no matter what the situation I'm in I, I know it's probably worse for somebody else so that's when I came up with this idea for the Owl Whiskey Virtual Whiskey Festival so I was having a chat with with someone and we, we were saying how this is before lockdown even happened so this must have been February time and we were talking about how it looks like all the whiskey festivals are going to be cancelled and there must be um, you know something we can do online to connect together and this is before people were getting on Zoom no one knew what Zoom was so it was just this idea of well why don't we do a virtual thing um Mark Gillespie, uh, who's the who runs Whiskeycast in the US, um, told me about a platform that he had been using called Streamyard, and that's I was like, wow. I mean, if I can get tasting packs put together, let's sell tickets and raise money for the Drinks Trust. Um, actually, <laughs> getting the tasting packs put together was a challenge in itself, but the festival I think was a success. We raised twelve thousand pounds for the Drinks Trust, um, which which was amazing, and and Diageo was one of the partners that we had for that, and and I'm so grateful for all the support that we had, and and Claxton's and the Dram team who were also my partners for it. Um, and off the back of that, um, work started to then pick up. So I've been doing some writing um, for a variety of publications. I do a bit of consultancy work for various brands, mostly around um, narrative brand strategy um, and some really about how to launch, like their launch strategy for new products as well. Because I think a lot, especially independent whiskey distilleries, are when they're ready to launch a new product, it can be really difficult to, to decide whether to actually do that under the current circumstances. With us all in lockdown, we're all at home. It's not a normal situation and certainly not what they ever planned for. So I think they're looking to other people in the industry at the moment for advice on on how, what's the best way to do that and and also what story do we present at the at the at this point because we also don't know how long we're going to be in this situation. So I do a lot of work around that too. Um, the Our Whiskey Festival is coming back actually if this is uh, being depending on when this is streamed it's happening now or has just happened so um hopefully we'll have raised even more money yeah it was amazing thanks everyone so much <laughs> um we'll, we'll see um so there's there's that and and our whiskey as well for anyone who ha who doesn't know what our whiskey is it's a, a a movement that i founded um co-founded in 2018 with uh, my friend Georgie Bell and uh, that really is to, to challenge this um, stereotypical view that whiskey is is just something that only men drink which of course both of you Nick and Tristan know that that's not true um, it's just something that seems to be a widely held opinion so we felt it was about time to do something about that and so far it's had great success Again, there will have been an announcement. There'll be re we've done research recently, so that will have all been announced by the time this podcast airs. And there's um, hopefully there's, there's change coming in the industry too. So that's that's all part of our whiskey. So what's our whiskey actually doing to kind of champion diversity? What are the uh, you know things that you're involved in? So, so so far, our whiskey. So we started off as a movement just to try to just on social media to showcase uh, the the women and and people within the industry who maybe don't get um, shown enough 
uh, in marketing, uh, when, when brand stories are told. So we wanted to really just show not just the industry, but the world that this is a drink that anybody can enjoy, regardless of, of gender or ethnicity or background. So that's how it all started, but it kind of started to transition. The, we had a resounding um, feedback from people all around the world when we launched our whiskey as a movement. A lot of people said, well, this is a long time coming. And of course, there, there are tons of groups uh, around the world of women in whiskey groups where women will gather together and, and they'll taste different whiskies and support each other that way. But there was never really one unifying campaign which was trying to change, um, I suppose, the narrative and, and the, this perception of whiskey. So it was something that was really well received. Since we launched, we have had discussions with various companies about their their communications, how women are portrayed in their communications. And we've done a few um uh, seminars as well at various uh, conferences highlighting exactly what the issue is and, and how it can be changed and all in a positive way and it, it comes it's very very simple that I, I I believe that the 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 issue can be addressed in two ways one is by trying to encourage more women into the whiskey industry to see whiskey as providing a career opportunity for them whether that's in production so blending or distilling or warehouse management or whether that's in communication so maybe it's in the marketing team or as a brand ambassador or even a writer for instance i think that's 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 a really important way that we get more women into the industry but the, the other way is to show those women in brand marketing and to try to encourage companies to uh, market their products, not just to the same white men that they have done historically. And, and, and Nick obviously will know this, that historic whiskey marketing, this is kind of a hole that the Scotch whiskey industry has dug for itself. And, and something that I know a lot of people have referred to, it's, it's the, as a product, it's always been aimed at men. But a lot of women still enjoy whiskey. It's just this perception is still hanging around us. So I feel like the way to combat that is to just not necessarily target women. I'm not talking about include like creating a whole female-led campaign, but just include women in the conversation when you're marketing a product, when you're creating advertising, to include women within the conversation in normal situations, just enjoying a glass of whiskey alongside another man or maybe some other people, just in a group situation. Just have a woman in the narrative because that's something that's generally lacked over the last few decades as we've seen. But I, th I think those two areas combined together will help change the narrative and I think it is slowly changing and, and whiskey companies are, are waking up to it and I actually think you know, Diageo and Johnny Walker are some of the strongest um, uh, brands and, and companies that that are that are doing really well in this area. I think more needs to happen, and I think change will happen slowly. It may not be in our lifetimes, but it will will get there. I think uh, I've seen a lot of change um, and a lot of positive change in the last few years. Um, we have a little way to get to where we should be or need to be, but I don't have any reason to doubt it won't happen in our lifetimes i i think i think the pace of these things you know is quicker than you perhaps perceive living through it um i just think about how much change has happened in the last 10 years i mean i see all the time now brands celebrating 
their female employees, female blenders, distillers. It's it, it's it's not something that's hidden away anymore. It's a they they a lot of brands. I'm not saying everyone, but some brands really treat their um, female ambassadors as you know prized assets uh, amongst what you know their activities. And I disagree. I disagree. I think the female brand ambassadors, the stillers and blenders are wheeled out at times to suit the brand. But the regular marketing and communications still is aimed at men and only features men. And actually, again, at the time this podcast has come out, we've just done a huge body of research, which just proves that. OK, so you, what you're saying is that you think um, that the female ambassadors are sort of being used as a kind of marketing tool rather than being celebrated as the employees. No, no, not necessarily. So I feel like having, yeah, having female, any, any woman working within a company is great, not only because they bring a different perspective to the job and the position, and they're obviously very skilled at the jobs that they do. But when you, when a brand has women working in these kind of uh, roles where they should be celebrated, that's great. And they are celebrating them, Mm. but they're not celebrating them all of the time. The, The general body of marketing and advertising still just tends to, and I'm speaking very broadly here, generally still just tends to feature men and is targeted at men. So we'll see, for instance, on Instagram, a lot of posts of, um, I don't know, you see these a lot of folded up shirts, a pair of shoes, a watch, a glass of whiskey, mm-hmm. um, hashtag weekend goals. Mm. And that is, that's, that's an image that we've all seen. It's always there. Um, a job advertisement will go out. And there was one maybe just even a couple of years ago for a global brand ambassador, which again was just like all of that kind of imagery, a pair of shoes, a plane ticket and a watch. And it, a brogues, I mean, male brogues. So it's it's obviously aimed at men. I feel like it's not a, this isn't a necessarily deliberate choice. It's unconscious bias. So we're, whoever is putting these together, whether that's PR communications or the brand manager or whoever, is just thinking, yeah, let's just create. And I thought, well, let's just put something out on Instagram because that influencer that we follow has done it and they featured our brand, so we'll just share it. But actually, when you look at your whole body of communications, you need to see, well, well how aligned is this with, with what we're trying to represent? Like, who who is our target consumer here? Because I bet you more often than not, Everything that you you've brought together, your whole body of work, will be targeted at men and will feature a lot of male objects and and men as well. I over the last year, in fact, not even that, over the last six months, I've had hundreds of messages from. Women. I just got an email yesterday from a woman, I can't remember which company she works for, uh, saying thank you so much for championing this because you're speaking on behalf of all of us women working in distilling positions, blending, in, working in shops, behind the bar. There was even a, a very well-known master blender who messaged me to say thank you so much for taking a lead on this because something needs to be said and something has to change. What, what are some examples, do you think, of, of brands or venues uh, that are sort of pushing this in the right direction? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, as I said, uh, D.I.J. is doing a fantastic job, um, Johnny Walker particularly, uh, if you look at a lot of the ever, their campaigns, everything has a great mix of of men and women and people of color within within all of their advertising. And I love how they're breaking down. It's not just about like representation, but they're breaking down the barriers of of what Scott should be, how you should drink it, and just getting rid of this rules and regulations book, which just 
doesn't really apply to the way that we drink whiskey today. So I think for the start, Johnny Walker for me is, is amazing. I just think the brands are probably missing a trick if they're not kind of exploring this opportunity. If you're not, then you're, you're, you're discounting 50% of your potential market for starters. Um, and, you know, if, if for, for me, I, I think, you know, whiskey is not a gender specific spirit. It's, it tastes great. And if, you know, if you're of the mind that you don't like it, then that's, that's fine if you've tried it. But if you haven't tried it, whether you're a man or a woman, it's probably because you've in some way been fed this idea that it's not for you. You're not old enough. You're not male enough. You're not white enough, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. And it's and that's that's actually something I come across quite a lot. And when, I mean, down in Brighton, where weirdly, you know, there's a huge number of drinks writers in Brighton. It's bizarre. Like we all seem to be living here on the South Coast. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the sea air or something. I don't know. We, um, it's making us thirsty. <laughs> it's <laughs> it just dehydrated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but we, that's a, a lot of my friends on the South Coast actually in, in, don't drink whiskey. And so I, I actually, with the number of bottles I get sent out for review purposes, I don't know what to do with because none of them drink whiskey. And the majority of my female friends and even strangers down at the gym, when people know what I do, they're like, their first reaction is, oh, really? Whiskey's a man's drink though, isn't it? Do you like it? Do you even like it? And that that's their general, genuine response. And I have to say to them, do you think if I was a man, you would have asked that? And I'm like, well maybe no probably not but they also don't like whiskey because they think that it's a product that's not for them they don't see it marketed to them so they just don't consider it it's not on their radar and I had a really interesting conversation with a female friend of mine who said she doesn't like whiskey it's too strong I said okay but do you drink gin she goes yeah gin and tonic okay well scotch is 40% ABV and so is gin she's like oh really yeah but scotch is a brown drink okay do you drink rum Oh yeah, rum and coke. Yeah, okay. Same thing. <laughs> and it's brown. And it is a perception around whiskey that it's 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 hard, it has to be drunk neat, and that it's only something for men to drink in an armchair in front of a roaring fire. And the whiskey industry is doing a huge job of trying to change that perception. A lot of work has gone into trying to change that perception. Probably millions of pounds has gone into changing that perception. So I think the more companies that can get behind this idea of trying to showcase whiskey as a drink for everybody, the better, really, because it appeals to more people. It's quite interesting that these ideas, you know, are so ingrained in in the minds of, of I don't know what you want to call them, consumers, the general public. Now, some, some of that undoubtedly has come from whiskey marketing, but I don't think actually all of it has. And, and certainly in my time in the industry, I've seen whiskey marketing change enormously in terms of the way it appeals to different different groups across a much more diverse spectrum than it ever did and and I think some of these ideas are sort of reinforced in society and and in different cultural ways so if you think of the way that whiskey is always represented in film for example you know yes and that's a huge cultural signal to people you know and whiskey is always men and normally something bad's going to happen after it's drunk, you know? Yes. And, yes. It, and it's the same in EastEnders as it is in a mo- movie of, of, of some sort. So there's a lot of cultural misrepresentation, I, I would argue, that needs to be overcome as well to, to get out of that position where either men or women have it somehow in their minds 
that whiskey is not a drink for women, you know. Yeah, I, can, and, I and totally a, agree. It's a huge it is. job, you know, it's a huge job. And you've got to like you've got to ask well who's who has the power to make that change and it all comes from the brands it all comes from people in the industry that's where it has the conversation has to start because once the brand message start, starts to change then the the script writers and the producers the production companies the directors the actors they start to see whiskey in a different way and start to realize well actually we're we're typecasting we're being too stereotypical here you know women in in film drinking whiskey are always shown to be badass or sexy or or alcoholics in the case of someone like Jessica Jones it will start to change and then as as the media also including here journalists who um, for national publications right very uh, lazy articles about women in whiskey and continue to ask that question, what's it like to be a woman in whiskey? And the more that uh, film and television and the media start to change their way of showcasing whiskey and, and who drinks it, that will then drip feed down to consumers as well. So it's this kind of like this, it all has to start with the brands. Yeah, I think bartenders have uh, possibly a position of power in this as well. Um, I mean, they you know they have the ability to sort of shape the drinks that people are drinking, especially at the high end, where you know people don't, but consumers don't tend to come in knowing what they're going to drink. They they're served something from a menu that's been devised by the venue. Uh, when we opened Whistling Shop um, nearly ten years ago, we put a a single malt cocktail on the menu, which. I mean, it's it's difficult to imagine, but only 10 years ago, that was fairly outlandish. Um, you know, there were, there were brands starting to kind of um, support the idea of the, the malts being mixed in cocktails, but it really wasn't, you know, pervasive in any way. And, and a lot of people thought it was a bit extreme to be using malts. Anyway, we, put, we did this drink, which was basically a sour. Um, it was actually designed by Ryan Chetty for Whistling Shop, and it was... A sour with with honey and lavender and um, lemon juice and a bit of vinegar. We did a shrub, a, a honey and lavender shrub, into cider vinegar. Uh, yeah, lemon juice and and effectively a sour, but sort of slightly more floral and slightly sweeter. Really, just kind of trying to champion these sort of Scottish flavors of the honey and everything. And um, it was a delicious drink. Like, there's just no two ways about it. It was tasty. And it ended up being our best-selling drink for the first year that we were open. And everyone was drinking it, everyone that came in. And we we were taken aback ourselves. We were surprised at that time that we had women ordering this drink, um, you know, who who wouldn't normally order scotch. And so what it taught us that is that you can kind of, un, uh, uh, you know, uh, overcome some of these cultural norms and start to change the zeitgeist around um, spirits consumption, whiskey consumption, by looking at how you mix drinks and what sort of what form these drinks come in, um, and and making them, I guess, seem more accessible. I mean, accessibility is such a big part of it. And I, <laughs> sort of going back to blends, I mean, I guess it's where that comes in as well. I mean, you look at highballs and and whether that's with soda or with ginger or whatever these are super accessible cocktails arguably more accessible than a gin and tonic in my opinion since they don't have that sort of bitterness to them um you know people who like to drink longer mixed drinks male female whatever uh you know i challenge you not to you know not to find a highball that you're not going to enjoy um in in one form or another um whether it's with 
you know, a little bit of citrus in there perhaps to make it more like a fizz or a sour or, you know, whether it's just with a nice long carbonated drink. I mean, you look at some of the new mixers that are coming out that are designed for brand spirits mixing. Yes, they're absolutely delicious. And these are drinks that you can order in a bar or drink at home. And um, I, I, I think, um, yeah, we need brands to start being more inclusive in, in what, you know, in, in their marketing for, for, for whiskey. But bartenders have an opportunity here too to make drinks that are accessible to anyone and for any occasion. You're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of power that bartenders have and and drinks that are accessible for everyone. But in that as well, let's not for, let's not assume that a certain type of person will only want a certain type of drink because that therein is you know is one of the issues. I think. But I think the other part of it is is bars ensuring that they have um, unconscious bias training for their teams so that they understand that if a woman and a man are sat at a table and you're bringing over to them a cosmopolitan and a, a dram of Lagavulin, you don't automatically put the Lagavulin in front of the guy. Sure. Uh, there, 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 what I, sorry, just what, what I would say to that is that it's it's one step at a time, right? And now I'm not suggesting that there aren't, women who don't enjoy a glass of Lagavulin, because, of course, there are, just as there are men. But if you are trying to attract more female, more women into... If you're trying to attract anyone into whiskey, um, then I would suggest that probably the best strategy is not to go with a straight glass of, of cask strength, but to move them into something that's not dissimilar to what they're already drinking. So say they're coming from a beer background... I'd, I'd serve them a highball or something along those lines. If they're coming from a gin and tonic background, then a whiskey Collins or something along those lines. So they, what I'm saying is that cocktails and mixed drinks containing whiskey can be used as sort of transitional tools from other spirit categories or from wine or from beer. Yeah, yeah that's, that's all consumers, isn't it? They've got to find a find a path into scotch. or Because yes. a lot of people aren't used to drinking spirits neat. Let's not forget 40% ABV is pretty damn high for people just to be sipping something neat so there does need to be a, a kind of um, a hand holding in a way and, and sort of bringing them into that category and, and getting them used to the flavors yeah sure so what do you see um next for whiskey how do you see it sort of evolving this category in the next five to ten years i mean there's a few changes that are taking place in respect of like cask finishing and stuff like that so we're seeing kind of some interesting new products begin to materialize out of that um and then there's non-age statement and sort of what that means for the industry especially you know around um blends i would say because non-age statement whiskies malts are blending in much younger whiskey they're sort of moving that flavor profile more towards that lighter style so I'd be interested to hear you guys what you where you see this industry going in the next five to ten years. The the biggest change we've seen over the last five years or so is the explosion of new distilleries all around the world. So world whiskey is going to be a really big thing, and a lot, um, especially as their whiskies come of age, and we're seeing distilleries that are producing whiskey that's a reflection of their own unique environments. A lot of consumers really consider it about um, where their food and drink comes from and the origins and wanting to understand the story of those products. I think that's going to become more and more important and um, really exciting, actually. I think we've got so much choice of flavour and, and, and in, in, just in whiskey even. This is just so incredible. I think on, on the other side of that as well, coming back to your highball conversation, 
with with blending i think there's kind of more of a reverence building for the skill of the blender and um how much art really goes into the creation of and and layering of flavor within a product so i think blends will start to gain a lot more respect um and and i would really like to see i think there have definitely been a few brands uh released lately but i'd like to see more blends or blended malts that uh, are designed specifically for use within cocktails because I, f- I feel like at the moment especially for the bar industry using single malts in cocktails can be a very expensive thing to do but a lot of the blends maybe that are on the market at the moment don't necessarily offer the flavor profile that they're looking for when creating uh, maybe a certain type of cocktail so I think more blends and more blended malts that really have that in mind. I mean you know if you'd have asked me even 20 years ago, if I would have imagined the world of whiskey being like it is today, I would I would have probably said no. So it, it's phenomenal where, where whiskey is at the moment. Um, and, and Beck is absolutely right. You know, the the opening of new new distilleries, um, you know, as we know, not all of them are going to survive. Some will be brought up by the big guys. Uh, and others will, will will manage to keep on as as independents producing these very distinctive one hopes at least very very distinctive styles of whiskey that that like all good whiskies speak of of where they've come from with a very honest and sort of true true voice so that's one one thing that's that, that's quite remarkable on the other hand of course i think it doesn't make it any easier for people coming into the whiskey category because there's just so much going on now there's so much innovation and I think that's where you still need the big brands. You know, the big brands need to be there to help people into the category. I mean, you know, I, I, it's some of the things I read people writing in social media about Johnny Walker Red Label, for example, I just don't understand because the world of whiskey would not exist without Johnny Walker Red Label, the foot soldier, recruiting people into whiskey all around the world. So you're still going to need brands big brands to bring people into the category in a in a simple straightforward way johnny walker highball you know thank you very much i quite like whiskey that's me on my journey and then people can just go to this huge world and 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 explore it but the, the as i say the vibrancy around whiskey at the moment is absolutely astonishing and anyone that's you know in the industry or associated with the industry should just be so excited to be alive at these times really mm. Seriously. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think it's super exciting with the world whiskey stuff to see how sort of new non-traditional whiskey producing regions put their stamp on the flavor. And I've seen so much of that in the States with um, traveling around the distilleries there and seeing how they're kind of establishing, you know, almost like Scotch whiskey regions um, to, to, to the United States with, with different cereals and production methods and things like that. And um, yeah, but you're right, Nick. I mean, in a sense, the, the huge amount of diversity with new distilleries is sort of mostly serving people who are already in the industry. Um, mm. Besides, I guess, you know, championing this craft thing and making, making giving people this idea that whiskey is a craft. Um, perhaps they didn't realize that already. Um, and I, I think it's exciting to see what big I mean, Johnny Walker itself has have have done a few initiatives more recently that is more befitting of a smaller craft distillery I mean I forget what the releases were called is it um the, 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 back, yeah. yeah 
Blender's batch, yeah. Um, with the, there was a coffee cask and a red wine cask, maybe, and a couple of other ones I can't remember. Mm -hmm. they, they're, they're packaged slightly differently, smaller 50cl bottles, um, and it's really interesting to see what I think uh, you know uh, the biggest established blender in the world can do when it behaves like a small craft distillery um, with all that expertise in blending and sourcing and and everything that comes with that. Um, it's super cool. So, um, Becky, you've you've got plenty to do for our whiskey. We look forward to seeing exactly how that is going to turn out. Nick, what's next for you? Because you've just left Diageo. So, what are you retired, or are you going to be consulting? Or well, well, I, at, the, at the moment, I'm halfway through my next book, so ah. that's, that's what's keeping me going in in lockdown three. Is it lockdown three? We're in, in yeah, the UK, I think. Who's counting? Um, and, and I'm hoping to get a few more writing projects uh off the ground and i've got a few other things i'm talking to people about so i'm certainly uh i may have left diageo but i'm certainly not gone by any means can you tell us what the next book is about or is that secret uh well I, it's it's a more general whiskey book let's okay. put it that way cool yeah. um Be becky any any closing words from you uh just thank you so much tristan for having me on that's what i was looking for thank you <laughs> <laughs> um and if, if anyone is listening and wants to learn more about our whiskey then do follow us on social media or visit uh at the time of recording our whiskey.com is not quite there yet but hopefully it will be up and running by the time this podcast is out where can people find you nick on social media uh on instagram facebook and twitter i'm sort of around there nicholas j morgan you'll 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 find me quite easily great thanks so much guys for coming on and uh thank you everyone for listening goodbye thanks for listening to the diageo bar academy bar chat podcast follow and subscribe now for more episodes and to rate this podcast you can also dive into previous episodes featuring conversations between myself and industry experts covering a whole range of interesting topics see you later everyone bye